The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Hello, everyone. My name is Angel Garcia, and I get the opportunity to serve here as one of the pastors. And today, I get the honor uh, to preach for us today. And uh, before we begin, I want to welcome the Pilot Campus. We are super excited that you are here as well, listening to the sermon. And Pilot Campus, please make as much noise as possible. So much noise that Justin gets a little nervous. All right. So with all that said, um, before we jump into the sermon, we are going to be studying Acts chapter 7. Uh, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts 7. And before we read Acts chapter 7, I need to tell you guys about a very cute child. You see, I am a dad of two boys, and sometimes it feels like I have four. And, and, uh, but I have two boys, and my oldest son, um, he was extremely cute as a baby. He was one of those babies that when you saw him, like we would go to the grocery store, and we would see, people would just go, ay Dios mío. Can, can, can I just look at him? And you're kind of like, no, but yeah, I, I understand. And um, he was really adorable. So go ahead and put, put the picture off of, of him. There you go. Look at that boy. Oh my gosh. That's my son. Right? That was him when he was, he was five. Oh my God. Okay, Alindo. And we would, put that, we would put that suit on him as much as possible uh, because here's the thing about even, even though he was so cute and so adorable and almost breathtaking, this boy could cry. Like, oh my gosh, could he cry. It was almost like a roaring lion when he would come out of his shell. And it was the kind of thing where our neighbors would always ask, hey, how's he doing today? Like, as we would watch the sun set and be like, oh no, it's almost nighttime. <laughs> and he's getting revved up. And he was just one of those kids where no matter what, we couldn't get him to stop crying. And and, um, and we, as first-time parents at that time, my wife, uh, Kate, and I, uh, we, would, uh, we made a terrible decision, and we decided to go fly to Chicago and take him. And many of you moms were just one of this, <gasps> why? And, um, and so it was a bad decision because of his horrible crying. And, but he was so cute, so we put him in his little suit, and we walk him, we're walking through the airport, and we get to the terminal, and everybody already is looking at him like, oh, no. Everyone's already thinking, oh, it's a baby coming on the plane. Oh, no. And we're coming through, and, and he's, he's kind of crying through the aisle, but you can't really hear because there's all this commotion. People putting their luggages up. And, and so finally, we sit down in the plane. We go ahead and sit, buckle ourselves up, and, and he just like, oh, it's my time to shine. And he starts like roaring and ah! and you would have thought he was transforming into some werewolf. And this monster of a child in this cute, adorable suit is just blowing his lungs out. And we're freaking out. And um, now, this was not the first time we had experienced this because this was who he was as a person. And so we had all these like tips and tricks that we would do and we, we would give candy, we would figure out ways to just please be quiet. And then one day, my grandfather told me about what he would do to get me to stop crying. And he's like, you know what I would do? I'll grab you, I'll put you on my shoulder and I'll just do this. <laughs> we call it the poppy shake. And so he talks about, he just, and your anxiety leads you to a point where you just, and so that would work for Angel. 
And so we're on this plane and, and we're kind of like just at this point where we've literally given him candy. We're literally giving him cookies. We're giving him prayer. We're giving him holy water. We're like, Leos, please. If someone would have said, hey, angel, if you burn $100 bills in front of him, he will stop crying. I would have done it. We were done. And I look at my wife. I'm like, babe, we've tried it all. Let's bring out the big guns, girl. Let's bring it out. She's like, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm like, babe, he needs it. These people around us who you can see, they're like, oh, it's okay. But you know it's not okay. <laughs> and everyone's taking bathroom breaks. Everybody's putting earphones on. And so I said, give him the kid. And I take the kid. And I go out and I do what everyone in this room is going to judge me on. But judge yourself first. And I step out into the aisle on a moving plane thousands of feet in the air and I put that boy on my shoulder and I gave him the poppy shake and I started cranking that shoulder on him and he's just there ah, ah. and then he went from crying to going eee. and he stops crying and then my beautiful baby boy he was back to Angelito the fourth right the cuteness and he looked at me and, like, mm. and it's so adorable and I start dancing with him in the aisle a little bit and, uh, and all the people, the, uh, the grandmas, the abuelas, the moms, everyone was like, <laughs> I felt like a hero. I was doing everything right. I felt like the man. And I'm like, yeah, look, look, look at him. Look at him. This is my baby. And we're having this moment. And then finally my wife is like, okay, enough. Come back. You don't know what's going to happen. Come sit back down. Put the beat and everything on. Get ready. And so I make my way back to the chair. And as I'm going back into the, to my seat, of course, all of a sudden, bing, bing. And next thing you know, this turbulence, whoom, the plane gets rocked by Godzilla. And I hit Angel's head on the baggage container. And we were right back into the roar. If anything, because he had taken a break, he had so much more energy and so much more volume. And I'm sitting there and I'm just like, ah, oh, I tried everything. I did everything right. And now he's back to this. And I'm almost like wanting to yell at anyone who made the turbulence. Man, I was just like, why, who did this? And as I'm sitting there, give him back to Kate, because I had no more patience at that point. Um, and as I'm sitting there, so frustrated, I realized that it was one of those things where I just couldn't be even frustrated at myself. We were put into this suffering that was out of our control. Our suffering was this kid crying, and then he was crying because his ears popped, and then the turbulence. All things that we cannot control. And this is a silly, goofy story with a cute kid. Come on, give me props, man. Boy, that kid's adorable. Oh, I deserve no credit. That was my wife. She's the bomb. And the thing is, um, I know it's silly, and I know it's cute, but I honestly have thousands of these kinds of stories. If anything, I have too many of these kinds of stories. These stories of me trying to do everything right. These stories of me putting forth the best effort possible. These stories of me checking all the boxes and yet something that brings forth suffering still happens. And I know I'm not alone. I know there are many of you in this room who can almost sympathize with me in having thousands of those kinds of stories. Whether it be an issue with health, 
where you tried your best to live a healthy life. You made sure that you jugged all the oils. You, everything was organico. You juiced everything. <laughs> and yet, you got bad news from a doctor once. You know, you had a relationship where you tried everything, you planned date nights, you spoke kindly, you did everything that you hoped would make this the most magnificent relationship, and yet, things ended sour. Or maybe you tried to raise your child to honor and value God, and yet, they've grown up to rebel. Maybe even finances, You've budgeted, you've done so much work, you've worked hard, you woke up every day, you fought traffic, you did everything that you had to do, and yet you look at your bank account and you wish it was a little bit different. You see, because the reality is of life, is that there's two kinds of suffering, there's two categories that all suffering can, be, can fall into. One, you have one category of suffering where, where basically you brought it upon yourself, you earned it, congratulations, right? You spoke back to your mom and you forgot she was Cubana and bam, <laughs> suffering. <laughs> right? Some kind of situation has come into your life of pain and turmoil, but you earned it. And that one's not really confusing to us. That one, we kind of take it, oh man, my face hurts, but I get it, yeah, I should have cleaned my room. Those kinds of sufferings where we've made poor decisions that have led to a break don't really cause that much of turmoil in our lives. But the second category, the suffering, when you have tried so hard to do what's right, when you have put forth good effort, when you have sought to be faithful, and yet, suffering still comes. This category of suffering is the most confusing one and most challenging one for us to understand. In this category of suffering, there is more books written on than any other topic. This is the one category of suffering which everyone in this room has tasted. It's bitter taste. When you do good, but yet still get bad. As a foster parent, when I used to foster children, I remember thinking, I'm trying to do good. Why is this bad thing happening? One of the most encouraging things about the Bible is that the Bible is not just a book of fairy tales and mystical people who elevated through life like this and nothing happened to them and life was all hugs and muffins and glitter all over the place. No, I don't know why there would be glitter in my weird analogy. The Bible is filled with stories of people who've suffered in both categories. And the Bible unveils their stories in both categories and how people still try to pursue God while living in a world of suffering similar to you. And today we're going to look at one particular person. His name is Stephen in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. This guy Stephen is a phenomenal dude. He really is. He's absolutely incredible. And before we read Acts chapter 7, verse 54, I want to kind of unpack for you a little bit about Stephen. Because I think you need to understand that this was a guy who literally had all the boxes checked. You see, when the first Christian church was, was being established, when the first group of Christians were coming together and formulating Christianity, 
they realized that there was a big problem in their community. They realized that in their community, there was a large group of women who were widows. And in this day and age, to be a widow meant that you were the lowest in the entire community. That you could not work for yourself, you could not provide money for yourself, you were the low of the low. And the Christian church had such a heart because of what they had seen in Christ that they said, we need to figure out a way to care for these widows. We need to figure out a way to provide for them food, protection, and care. And when they were figuring out how do we care for them, you know who they assigned the job? Stephen. Stephen formulated the first Christian charity in the history of our planet. He created charity within the Christians. And he lived throughout the season of his life caring for others, sacrificing so he can provide for others, formulating plans, having meetings to figure out how do we care for these widows. When Stephen would walk around the community, people would see him and honor him because of his charitable living. Stephen was a good dude. He was great, man. But not only was Stephen a caring guy who sought to care for the widows, who sought to care for the, most, the, the, the suffering of their community, but he also had great faith. He was a man who lived a godly life. He was a man that in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, the author of the book of Acts, his name is Luke, what he did was when he was writing about Stephen in chapter 6, verse 5, he talks about the level of faith that Stephen had and the level of like commitment to the Christian life that Stephen had. That when you heard Stephen's name, you immediately thought, right living. Stephen was a good guy, went to church every Sunday. Gave to church, served in the kids' ministry, even, even on Labor Day weekend. <laughs> Stephen was a good dude. But not only was he involved in the, in the first charity, not only was he a guy living a godly life, seeking to be faithful, but chapter 6, verse 10 tells us something very interesting about Stephen. See, because it would be cool if it ended there. But there's another quality about Stephen that's super fascinating that really bleeds into what we're going to be talking about. He was extremely wise. Chapter 6, verse 10 talks about the wisdom he has. And he even gives an example of how when Stephen was debating with some religious scholars of the time that they could not handle the wisdom that was coming out of him. They couldn't handle the debate that they almost had to be like, yo, I, I, I don't know, man. And these were people who went to school for this. These were people who had degrees in Old Testament studies, but yet, before Stephen, they couldn't debate. And that passage actually tells us that it was because of the Holy Spirit in him that he had such great wisdom. And that is a whole other amazing conversation later. But we see in this man, Stephen, he had a heart for the broken. We see in this man, Stephen, he was faithful in obedience to God. We see in this man, Stephen, that he was filled with wisdom. He was a good dude. Ladies, if you met Stephen, you'd be like, oh yeah, me. He's got all the boxes checked. And then something happens very significant to Stephen. Then chapter seven, verse 54. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna read verse 54. We're gonna pause there because there's some things I have to explain to you before we get to 55 to 60. So look back down at chapter seven, 
verse 54. Let me just read this one verse. And now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Let's just pause there before we continue reading. We first have to unpack that, that third word in that sentence, day. Who is day? Because I have just dropped you in at the last two minutes of the two-hour movie. And so here's the truth. The day that is being spoken of in this passage is very important to understand these people's background. See, in Acts chapter 6, the author, Luke, specifically mentions who these people are, and he specifically mentions the name of their community. The name of the community is the freedmen. And when I first read that, I looked at it, I was like, cool, who cares? Let's keep reading. <laughs> because I have a tendency, whenever I read certain things in, word, in, in the Bible, I just kind of glance over and I try and get to the meat because I have a tendency of forgetting that every word in the scriptures has massive implications and is there for specific reasons to really help us understand the beauty of God's word. And so I started doing a a little research on the Freeman people mentioned in chapter six, the people that Stephen was having the big issues with. See, because here's the interesting thing about the Freedmen. Back in 1913, in this big archaeological find in Jerusalem, they uncovered this massive stone tablet. And on the stone tablet, what they realized was it was hundreds and hundreds of names, Roman names. It's going to make sense in just a moment. And as they read these Roman names, they realized that on this tablet, this was a directory of a synagogue. And the confusion began. Why are there all these Roman names at the Jewish synagogue? And they realized that this was the church directory of the Freeman synagogue mentioned in this passage. And the fact that all of those people had names that were Roman, even though they were worshiping in a Jewish temple in Jerusalem, what historians have come to find as they have discovered more about this specific region, this specific temple, the freemen, they made the connection to this one passage and this one scenario with Stephen. The people of the, the freemen people were former slaves to Rome. They were a group of people, a mass crowd of individuals who at one point were complete slaves to Rome to the point where their names were changed to Roman names. And yet, no one knows to this day why they were let to be free. And they migrated to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they said, you know what? Let's create our own community. And in our own community, we'll create and establish our own church. What are we going to name it? Freeman Church. Because we're free now. This is huge. Keep tracking with me. So when Stephen then is having his debate with the Freeman Church, they go ahead and get their high priest and say, high priest, go slap that dude in place, man. He's talking all this jazz about, about Moses. He's talking all this stuff that he shouldn't be talking. Put him in his place, high priest. And Stephen gets brought before the high priest, gets brought before the freemen, all these people who at one point were slaves. They probably had branding, tattooed slaves on their arms. They probably had certain piercings, holes left in their ears because of their slavery these former slaves, and now listen to a sermon from Stephen. 
And Stephen does something very interesting in Acts chapter seven. He begins to talk about three different Jewish figures. Jewish people from the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. He speaks about Abraham, he speaks about Joseph, he speaks about Moses. And the thread that winds in between all of these individuals is their experience with slavery. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. Joseph wasn't born a slave, but he was sold into it. Moses was the ultimate freer of the slaves, freeing millions of Jewish slaves from Egypt. We all hopefully know the story. And what Stephen is doing is he begins his sermon by saying, I know you. I know your history. I know what you need to hear. I care for you. So let me help you understand the physical slavery you've been in and come out of. And let me help you understand the spiritual slavery that Jesus is seeking to provide. I like Ice Ice Baby too. It's a good song. I love the 80s music. No, wait, that was DC. All oh, right, whatever. All right. Let's run DMC. Now, here's the thing. The reality is that in this moment, what Stephen is doing is he is revealing the level of care he has for people, where he is not just reading the scripted message to them. He's saying, I know you, and I know what you need. So with that kind of understanding, let's reread from 54 to 60, and let's look at this one more time. Now, when they had heard these things, when they heard his sermon specifically tailored for their lives, when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, the heavens have opened and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast off, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named, what's his name? Saul, very important. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let me just paint a picture for you what just happened. Stephen, in front of the high priest, preaches a sermon about how God is seeking to free them from the spiritual slavery through Jesus. He preaches a sermon all about Christ. He is seeking to help them experience internal slavery, spiritual uh, freedom from their slavery. And as doing that, they are full of rage to the point where they're grinding their teeth together. They're so enraged that they're clenching their fists and biting themselves. And even at one point in this passage, they're blocking the words from his, their ears. They are so angry, they are oblivious to how ridiculous they look. And that rage and that anger drives them to rush him. And they grab Stephen and get him to stop speaking. They begin to drag him out of the city. And just imagine Stephen at that moment. Imagine what's running through his mind at that moment. One moment he is preaching a sermon of love. Next moment he is trying not to be run over. 
And he is being dragged. Dragged through the dirt, dragged through the rocks, taken out of the city. And he's in his mind probably thinking, okay, they're just going to make me go out there. I'm going to have to walk back, get new clothes. It's okay, no biggie. And the rage feels so deep that they then begin to gather rocks together. The passage doesn't say rocks. The passage says stones, making reference to basically stones that would have to be carried with two hands. And they go ahead and they throw Stephen into the middle of the circle. And the rage gets, keeps boiling up and Stephen looks up to heaven and sees something so remarkable that we're going to talk about in just a few moments. And they begin to stone him. They begin to heap these massive stones onto his body. And while doing it, they take off their garments and lay them down at the feet of this guy named Saul. Very significant. And you know what the craziest thing about that whole story is? That suffering was really out of his control. He was a good guy, honored in his community, seeking to live a life for God. He was a guy seeking to show love and seeking to help these people, and it went sour. And he still suffered even though he was trying to do good. And the most remarkable thing about this entire passage, he didn't quit. He didn't give up. He didn't throw the towel in. He didn't say, oh, I'm going through a bad time now. I'm facing discomfort. I've tried to do good. I've tried to be good. I've tried to be holy. I've tried this whole Jesus thing. Quit. Done. Wrap. No. He didn't. He remained faithful. He remained true. He remained on track towards following Christ. That even while the stones are landing on his body, the words out of his mouth are words of Lord. He's crying out to his God. He is not forsaking God. And they're words of care. Don't hold this sin against them, God. For those of you in this room who are suffering, because of stuff outside your control, whether it be an illness, whether it be a relationship issue, whether it be something at work, whether it be some form of persecution of any kind. Don't quit. Don't turn your back on him. Don't forsake him. Don't just leave. Don't be the kind of person who says, I tried Jesus and it didn't work. A statement like that, which I hear so often, I tried Jesus and yet my house was foreclosed. I tried Jesus and yet I was laid off is a statement that reveals something so significant about a person. It reveals that you don't worship Jesus. You never worshiped him. You worshiped comfort. And you wanted Jesus to try to make everything around you better. You didn't want Jesus because he is God. See, because the reality of suffering, suffering does something super significant. Suffering has a way of going ahead and exposing who we truly are. Suffering, in a lot of ways, is like a tea bag being dropped into hot water. When you look at a tea bag and you see it just looks like a bunch of grass in some kind of sack. And you look at it like, what, is that a twig? Is that a cranberry? What is that? Is it orange peel? What, what is this? 
But when you drop that tea bag into something that's hot, when you drop it into hot water, you see what that tea bag is. And suffering exposes who we truly are. And I know this because that's what's been true in my life. Some of my biggest moments of backsliding, some of my biggest moments of turning from Christ have been a result because the water's gotten so hot and something's being exposed in me. Not perfect. I'm not the guru who came from the bottom of the mountain hovering down. I'm just like you. And when the water gets hot, it's hard for me too. But there's two reasons why we should never turn on Jesus. There's two reasons why we should never quit on him. Why we should never give up following him even though when things get hard outside of our control. And for those of you in this room who might be living in a state where things have become challenging, where things have become difficult, where you're facing a suffering that is out of your control and you have turned from him and you have quit Jesus and you have abandoned, I want you to know that grace is for you. And give me, let me give you an example of this. Let me tell you about the apostles. The apostles were some interesting guys. They were the closest followers to Jesus. And when things went crazy, when things got wild in Jesus' ministry, the apostles, for three years, they ate with Jesus, walked with Jesus, slept next to Jesus, learned from Jesus, watched Jesus do miracles. They were like front row seating to Jesus' ministry. But yet, when Jesus was arrested, when Jesus was taken into torment, when Jesus was going ahead and put on the cross, the disciples, the early apostles, they scattered and ran and quit. And God in his goodness said, come back. There's grace for you. There's forgiveness for you. So for those of you in a moment of your life and your season and your story, as the water's gotten hot and you've been exposed as somebody who worships comfort over Jesus, I want you to know you don't have to live that way. You can repent of this sin, you can experience forgiveness, and you can allow Jesus to bring you back and restore that relationship with him. But let's look at these two reasons why we shouldn't abandon him. They come from this passage. Reason number one, Jesus is there. Jesus is present in the suffering. Look at verses 55 and 56. But he saw, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, the heavens have opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. This is huge. This is massive because it exposes something very significant about Christ. That in Stephen's suffering, in Stephen's moment of turmoil, Jesus is present. Jesus is there. And he's not just there just as a spectator. There's something very significant about this detail of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You see, because all throughout the Bible, whenever it talks about Jesus sitting on the throne, it always talks about him in a posture of seating. And people love it, and it's amazing. In Ephesians, it talks about it. It talks about it in Colossians and Revelation. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. But here, 
It, talks, it shows that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. See, to understand this, you have to understand culture of this day and age, and you have to understand culture amongst royalty. You see, because when royalty will sit on their throne, they wouldn't stand for nothing. They would only stand if ever someone came into their presence that they wanted to show honor. They would only stand when someone came into the present they wanted to show encouragement. Jesus at this moment is not just spectating. Jesus is offering him some fuel at this moment. Jesus is saying, I see it and I honor it. My son, I'm here. It's huge. And this would be just cool if this was the only example of this. If this was like the one time in the Bible, man, how cool, and then Jesus was there and his suffering. But no, this is the ongoing example all throughout the entirety of the Bible. So much so that there's this guy, his name is David. In the Old Testament, there's all these stories about David. One of his most popular stories is when he fights and kills a giant. Oh my gosh, a giant? I can't even kill a cucaracha. Like a giant? <laughs> My goodness, I act like I don't see roaches because I'm so scared of them sometimes. Oh, I don't see it. It's not there. <laughs> It'll go behind the, the TV and never come out again. Um, but David later becomes King David. And David, throughout all of his life, what's incredible about his story is that he deals with suffering on both categories. He deals with suffering that's his fault, and he deals with suffering as a result of something out of his control. Like at one point, he has a, his son dies. At one point, his best friend dies. At one point, his mentor turns his back on him and seeks to murder him, and his mentor dies. At one point, the entire country that he once spent his whole life fighting for in war turned their back on him and pursued to try and murder him. David knew suffering. And what's so fascinating when you read the Psalms, is that he's speaking of his experiences and speaking of what he knows about God in the midst of his suffering. And look what he says over here in Psalms, Psalms 34, 18. He tells us, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. David is speaking from a posture of experience. David is saying, I have been broken and I've known that God is there. Jesus is there when you are broken. He is there when you face suffering. And that would be cool if it was David's story. But man, let me give you another example of this. I mentioned the apostles earlier and how the apostles and all of their, and imagine just the, the, the craziness of their situation. Here you're following a man for three years you're eating with him, fish and bread. At one point, he does miracles. At one point, you're at a party. The party's dying. He says, no. He turns the water into wine. You're like, yo, Jesus is the bomb, man. Right? They're living life with Jesus, enjoying him. And then he gets arrested. And then he gets murdered. And then all of them say, yo, we're done with this. We're running. They quit. And then three days later, Jesus returns Already like, whoa. <laughs> he says something to them. At the end of his time in the book of Matthew, he ends the book with a promise. 
So significant. Remember, just to remind you, he, as Jesus is about to say this promise, he is looking in a room filled with men who will one day be tortured. One of the men will be one day hung upside down. One of the men will be dropped into a boiling pot of oil. One of the men will be hit over the head of a club, tortured to death, majority of these guys. And instead of Jesus giving them some tips and tricks, he gives them an incredible promise that some of you have to know. He says this in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' ultimate promise is his presence. Do you know why? Because if you have Jesus, you have everything. If you have Jesus, you have peace. If you have Jesus, you have perspective. If you have Jesus, you have it all in him. You have strength, you have wisdom. If you have Jesus, you have it all. And I know for some of us, we're hearing this and thinking, yeah, but that doesn't change my suffering. But Christ has the capacity to take your suffering and use it for something greater. Christ has the capacity to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. I have sat in hospital rooms with a person dying of cancer, literally told you will be done in an hour, and that person's saying, let me sing a song of praise. You have to understand, if you have him, you have it all. You have it all in Jesus. His promise is his presence. But then this passage also reveals something else. On a more practical point of view. See, because this passage shows us something significant, that God has a plan. That there's some story this master writer is orchestrating before us. That there's something big that he's doing, even if we can't see it at the moment. See, look back down at the passage. Let's look at verse 58. And this is... Look at verse 58. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is an incredible person that we need to understand a little bit about. See, because at this moment, these people, they're like, yo, I don't want nothing to get in my way of throwing these stones. So let's take off these garments to make sure we got full range of motion. And where are we going to put them? Oh, let's put it in front of the guy who we can trust and is in full agreement of this murder. We know he's not going to run away. We know he's almost assuming responsibility for it. Saul. And they lay their coats at the feet of Saul. And Saul, this is a representation of the fact that he was in full agreement of this moment. And the incredible thing about the story of Saul so at this moment, after this moment, I'm sorry, he goes on a rampage and begins to persecute the Christian church. And historians talk about thousands of Christians dying because of the leading of Paul, of Saul. And later in Saul's life, he runs into Jesus and he has an encounter with Christ where his life is completely radically different. And this encounter with Christ causes him to go from being a murderer of the Christians to now writing majority of the New Testament that you have in your hands. And what the offer of Acts, Luke, what he is communicating at this moment, this is him introducing the most influential person in Christianity outside of Jesus. 
revealing that at this moment, while Stephen is going through this, this is God seeking to give Saul the opportunity to turn, showing Saul the faithfulness of the Christians, showing Saul the love of the Christians, having Saul hear the gospel as Stephen is dying and yells out, Lord, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. Sometimes God has a plan and the plan does not benefit us. Sometimes the plan benefits our children. Sometimes it benefits those who are looking from the outside. Sometimes it benefits others. And sometimes it does benefit us. But the reality is that as we suffer because of things outside of our control, we can't abandon the reality that God has a plan. And there's a big difference between trying to harm someone and trying to help someone. And God in his plan is not harming, but he's helping. And so this past Sunday, I was, um, we had a team from, a, a, a group of teenagers that went to Puerto Rico. And uh, they got back this, this past weekend, and they brought me a souvenir. And it was super sweet of them. And I'm in my office, and oh, they're all gathered up in my office. And, and they say, Andrew, come here. And I walk into the office, and they're holding up the souvenir. And they're like, this made us think of you. And I was like, oh, great. And it was a picture of, it was a shirt of Bob Ross. And <laughs> I'm looking at the shirt like, cool. I, I'm not Bob Ross. Can't even write my name <laughs> without messing it up. And they start explaining, like, oh, yeah, because I had a sermon. And the students, they just power, pound me with stuff of Bob Ross constantly. And as I'm looking at this shirt, I'm reminded of something very true, something very real. Something about Bob Ross that I do really enjoy. For those of you who don't know who Bob Ross is, this is him up here. Uh, and he is a famous artist. And if you don't, look how happy that man is. What a guy. What a guy. Bobby Ross. And Bob Ross, he's, he's a great painter. And if you don't know him too well, he's, he's, he's actually on Netflix now. Hey. And, uh, and I bore my son with it constantly because I love it. And what's great about Bob Ross is that he'll, he'll grab a painting and he'll sit up there and be like, okay, everyone, I hope you're doing well today. Today on the Bob Ross show, we're going to paint a mountain, right? And, and he starts like drawing and, and you sit there captivated. Everybody watches the show is, right? And always a little drool comes out. Like you forget all things happening in the world. Like two hours just goes like that. And you're watching the show and he's like drawing beautiful things. Like, all right, now we're going to draw a little little mama bear over here. Mama bear is looking for baby bear over here. And now they're talking. Isn't that sweet? Yes. And then he draws this beautiful thing, but he does this one thing always where you're like, ah, he then goes like this. He's drawing this beautiful painting. And then he goes, and now watch this. And he draws this nasty line. And you're like, Bob, you ruined it. Why'd you ruin the painting, Bob? And then that nasty little line is like, oh, you think I ruined it? Psych boy. And then he goes like this. He doesn't say psych boy. That's a 2019 version. And then he, what he does is he then turns that horrible line that he drew in it, the line that caused everybody to be like, it's over, boy. He turns it into the centerpiece of the masterpiece. He turns it and wraps it all in and unveils the plan to the beautiful artwork. Know this. Your God is there with you. Don't quit. Your God has a plan for you. Don't quit. You don't know what the painting's gonna look like. Don't quit. And there's some of you in this room who as I'm even looking over the room, you're, you're literally doing this. Because you know. Because you did not quit. 
because you faced the turmoil, you faced the suffering, and you saw it through, and you saw Jesus in it all. You felt his grace, you saw the painting, and you have seen it, and you said, yes, angel, you are right, because he didn't quit. But there's some of you in this room who are in the midst of the turmoil, and you're listening to me thinking, I can't nod my head, I can't even think right now, and you are on the brink of quitting. Stephen, in his suffering, he put forth the action and the work to glance to heaven, to look for Jesus in it all. What's the action you need to take to see Christ in your suffering? Every Tuesday, we meet here and we have a moment of prayer and a moment of worship Tuesday at 7 a.m. Is that your step to see Jesus in the midst of the storm that you are in? Is it you starting a Bible reading plan and getting deeper in God's word? Is it you getting deeper in God's community? What is your next step? so that you can not only just see Jesus, but experience him in the midst of your storm. Let me go ahead and close this in prayer. God, we thank you for the the thousands upon thousands of stories of you being present in suffering. God, thank you so much for the way that you reveal yourself. Lord, for the way that you are there and present, not out of obligation, but out of love. Thank you for loving us so much so that you would be present in our suffering. That you would be willing to offer encouragement, offering peace, honoring us and being present with us. Thank you for the promise of your presence. God, give us the strength, give us the boldness, give us the endurance to not quit. God, give us the ability to trust you even when everything around us seems so chaotic. Jesus, we need you and only you. Help us to believe that if we have you, Jesus, we have everything. I pray for those in this room who don't know you. Holy Spirit, that you speak into their lives and give them a moment with you that they cannot explain away. Give them a situation where they can't say this is anything else other than God working in my life. Thank you, Jesus, for the way that you You allow for us to know you. Even that is a sign of your grace. Not one of us deserve to even know you. And yet we can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.